It's a 500 billion market cap asset today. So if you need to store any amount of purchasing power less than $500 billion, which is the case for most of us, then you have access to be able to put your entire net worth into this thing that you can put on your brain or you can transmit over radio, transmit over the internet, you can write it down on a sheet of paper. It, you have tremendous power to now move yourself and your wealth anywhere in the world outside of any legal framework whatsoever. So it's, it's almost like this, you know, that classic idea of power to the people. This is one of the ultimate implications of giving power to the people. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. But today we have Mr. Robert Breedlove, who is a freedom maximalist and a Bitcoin philosopher. I'm not going to lie. I didn't know Bitcoin philosophy was a thing until I started looking into you. And uh, really, there's a whole bunch of interesting questions here. So I think that I want to start out by just asking you just to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this kind of niche space. And then um, I have a million specific questions to ask you, but uh, just give, give us a little bit of information about who you are and how you came to be where you're at today. Yeah, sure. I'll give a short version. Um, I, my background is in accounting and finance. I've got an undergraduate in accounting and finance and a master's degree in accounting. Um, I've been a very extreme, extremely avid reader my whole life to my mom she's always encouraged me to just read to solve problems and i've taken my curiosity in a lot of directions but one direction i took 
I spent many years was going down kind of the economics, finance, money rabbit hole. And I read the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, when I was about 18 years old, uh, which is about the inception of the Federal Reserve. It's a true story, but it's written like a literary fiction detective novel. It's really, really, really good. Highly recommend it. Gets into the nature of money, gets into the nature of central banking, and the conclusion is that the monopolization of money is basically the main problem in the world. So, and I discovered that when I was like 18, this is before Bitcoin existed, didn't know what to, with that information, just like, this is a big problem, but there's not really, there's no viable solution for this. And then fast forward, uh, 2016, 17, I had just started working for myself at a career before that as like a CFO mostly focused in tech. And I just decided to start my own business. I had one CFO consulting client and it gave me enough bandwidth to kind of get curious again and look into things. And so when I started looking into crypto more broadly, I eventually discovered that Bitcoin was the solution to central banking and, um, started tweeting about it, writing about it, talking about it. And all of those things just became more and more popular, kind of like a flywheel effect. Mm. And um, now I went from 300 Twitter followers in 2017 to 300,000 in 2022. So I don't know, I'm just uh, I'm talking about the things I've learned, studying the nature of money and economics. And, and it also gets into all these other domains, you know, like human psychology, sociology, military history, technology, physics, um, just try to understand how humans organize themselves. What are the mega political variables? And I guess in a nutshell, you could say it's a really broad nerdy topic. And I've discovered that there's a lot of other nerds in the world that like to think about these things and talk about these things too. So I feel very grateful and privileged to do what I do. Yeah, well, uh, definitely uh, this audience is uh, of the nerdy type. So, you know, again, happy to have you on. Uh, before we get to those uh, specifics, I want to talk about um, the philosophy of freedom maximalism. You're talking about how you're very interested in how people organize themselves um, on all of these different type of um, axes, let's say. So what exactly is freedom maximalism? How, what is that organizational system? Uh, what is it and why do you find it appealing? Um, and then believe me, we'll get to the central bank stuff. Or, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a novel moniker that I use to be trying to be very specific about what I believe is the right mode of being in the world. Um, you could also say this is libertarianism in the classic sense, not the political party. Um, you could also say this is, uh, something we call it voluntarism where you know, there's all mutual, consensual, voluntary exchange. There's no involuntary exchange. Um, it's also been called agorism. Um, it's been called anarcho-capitalism. Yeah. Or it's like capitalism in a sense. So the, the gist of it is quite simple, really. You, And we've known this since King John signed the Magna Carta in 1215. Principles of that document were life, liberty, and inviolable property. So, you know, let people live, let people be free, let people keep what they earn, basically. And um, 
leave people alone beyond that. Just leave people alone. Government exists exclusively in a philosophical sense just to preserve life, liberty, and property. That's the reason we create government, this uh, centralized monopoly on violence. Um, we, we've monopolized that power such that we can all live free and trade with one another and create a lot of wealth and prosperity in the process. So freedom maximalism is essentially that, just classical libertarianism, you know, the, the non-aggression principle, uh, the flip side of which is the principle of self-defense. So, you know, life, liberty, property, leave people alone in a nutshell is freedom maximalism. Sure. So um, I was um, a pretty hardcore libertarian um, back in the day, and I still harbor some very uh, significant sympathies. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm way into the uh, natural rights stuff, the um, the proper role of government stuff. Um, I do have a couple of questions for you, though, um, specifically about this. Um, I read, well, first of all, a specific question that's kind of off topic, because if I don't ask it, I'm going to forget is um, I read in one of your articles that the right to property essentially comes from mixing your right to life um, and your your liberty and your labor with property, and all of a sudden it becomes yours because you're mixing your um, your labor with it, and then all of a sudden you have a right to it. Um, how does that work exactly when it comes to things like inheritance? Do you believe in uh, the passing of things down to one's descendants um do you think that ownership is still legitimate since you know the kids never actually mixed any of their own labor with the property um again a bit of an esoteric question but this is um this is one that i think about quite a bit so i'm curious for your thoughts on that idea i can 100 think it's legitimate it should not be infringed or taxed in any way because the person who accumulated that wealth using to what to do with it right they're consensually giving it to another person who presumably is consensually accepting it um so yeah so it's not just about how the wealth was created but it's also how it's transferred all right if it's transferred consensually mutually then it's a valid transfer sure so absolutely i don't think and that's a real problem too right when governments want to tax inheritance all yeah. these things I think it interferes with the wealth creation process. And it's actually, it's a disincentive to the wealth creator. If you know that you can't pass along all your wealth to your children or your heirs, whoever you choose, and when you're going to get whacked 50% or whatever the number is, then that's a disincentive for you to go and create that wealth. Right. It shortens your time horizon 100%, um, which is not good. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the NAP, um, the, the non-aggression principle. Um, do you believe so i'm kind of confused on what level you believe government should exist at because there's a difference between um you know more traditional libertarianism as i understand it which is that government exists but it's just extremely extremely limited versus anarcho-capitalism which basically um as far as i'm aware throws out the government and assumes that everybody as a rational actor will be able to enforce the nap themselves without a centralized monopoly on force like the government so where are you on that do you think that some government is still necessary to you know protect those rights and liberties or do you think that uh you know self-defense and organic unity uh will handle that sort of thing um you know i try to be try to think very practically about this and i always point people on this topic to a great book called the sovereign individual it goes into this esoteric 
exploration of the economics of violence or coercion. So it's actually things like the invention of gunpowder radically changed the way we organize ourselves. Because before gunpowder, you could have a knight on horseback that was basically unstoppable, right? He was, he was the law of the land. It was the most powerful military technology of the day. You know, one knight on horseback could kill 50 peasants, something like that. Right. Then with the invention of gunpowder, all of a sudden a single peasant from 200 yards with a rifle can kill the knight on horseback. So the knight on horseback that was the law of the land ceases to become that and the, the peasants become more free to self-organize uh, just as a result of this invention. So I think a lot of it comes down to that, that it's really, we, the primary mega political variable that we organize ourselves under is technology. Ultimately, it's like the, the technological paradigm we inhabit determines what we do and how we do it. And to the extent technology can be used to extract wealth from someone, which is another way of saying to the extent that it is profitable to steal from someone is the extent to which we have crime and government. And the inverse is also true. So the harder and more expensive it is to steal, uh, the less relevant crime and government become. So what do I think? I think that the big deal with Bitcoin is that for the first time in history, we have this form of globally transactable money or, or an asset or property, whatever you want to call it, that does not need a centralized power to enforce a property right in. It's, um, it's very unique in that sense that you can, that owning and knowing have become the same thing as to know your private key is to own your Bitcoin. So it's just this purely informational property relationship between an owner and their asset. And you don't need the government to acknowledge that or enforce that, right? It's independent. It's orthogonal to the government or the state in general. So by giving people access to this form of property that a government is not needed to enshrine or enforce, I think it lowers the relevance of government in the long run. Now, I also try to distinguish between the government and the state. We often use these as, a, as if they're interchangeable terms. Government is something, again, as long as that it's consensual and we're agreeing upon these rules and I can opt out, um, we're, we're always going to have government, right? Your, your homeowners association is like a little tiny government, right? Everyone gets together and says, here's some rules we want to apply. Um, to the neighborhood, right? We don't want certain colors on the house. We don't want s s broken automobiles in the front lawn, whatever the rules may be. And they can fight amongst themselves, negotiate amongst themselves to determine what those rules are. And then once those rules are chosen through some, you know, presumably democratic mechanism, they're applied evenly to everyone in that, that homeowners association. That's fine. That's a little mini government. It may involve some unfriendly conversations and disputes at times. But the key point is that at any time, if you as a homeowner don't like the rule set you're in, then you can opt out, right? You can sell a house, you can move to another neighborhood. Um, that is not the case in the United States. If you have above a $2 million net worth and you decide, hey, you know what? These services I'm receiving aren't worth the tax burden that I'm paying. I think I'm gonna take my wealth and move to another country. Well, the U.S. imposes what's called an exit tax in those circumstances. 
So they would take a certain percentage of your wealth above $2 million and steal it from you before you're able to rescind that contract with them. So that is the problem. The state that actually steals and extracts wealth and doesn't, it inhibits this voluntary process, sensual process of people moving to where they are treated best. Um, that, that is what we need to mitigate and eliminate ultimately, in my opinion, the less, the less coercion we have, the less non-consensual exchange we have in the world, the more value we can create, the more, uh, the higher the standards of living we can create, the more human flourishing, the more prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. Another way to think about this whole thing is what we're doing in the world economy is trying to make best use of our time. And I want, so I, you know, the classic divisional labor, I'm better at making hats and you're better at making boots. We both benefit if I specialize in hats and you specialize in boots when we trade. That's like the very general principle that makes cooperation more profitable than attacking one another, essentially. If the, every hour or every human hour we spend stealing wealth rather than producing wealth is a dis, it diseconomizes. It's not a good use of human time, right? It's a zero-sum game. If you steal my hats, no new hats have been created. You have spent time stealing from me. Aggregate goods did not go up. Actually, my incentive to produce hats went down because someone stole from me. Whereas if we had all of our hours engaged in production, we would actually create more goods per human hour, which is more prosperity, more human flourishing. Right. Well, what we're saying here is like the degree to which we can disincentivize or mitigate theft is the same degree to which we can increase or enhance human prosperity and flourishing. There is so much there that if I asked every question I wanted to, it would be the entire rest of the show. So I'm going to limit myself to just a couple of things. Um, number one is I a hundred percent agree about the exit tax. That feels horrific. Would you say that in a system where there is no exit tax, where there is no barrier to exit other than, you know, just the practical realities of getting from point A to point B, would taxation within those opt-out systems also be considered stealing by you? Or would they not be because you can opt out very easily? Well, we got to be careful with our terminology here because that's what taxation actually means. Uh, something It's something like tribute. I don't know if you've ever seen... Mm a mafia movie where they control a particular territory and they go around to every little merchant, every barber, coffee shop, bar, etc., and they charge them protection money. Yeah. Right? They go say, give me X dollars and we won't hurt you, basically. That's essentially what taxation is. It's not consensual. Status. Well, you can't really negotiate it, but you're being faced with coercion. So... When we talk about these exchanges with government being voluntary or consensual, like if there was a, a physical service provider that you could say yes or no to, that would no longer be taxation. That would be security fee, something like that. Okay. So it's not black or white, but in general, it is, it's the power to say no that keeps producers honest. Right. And if you have no... You're dealing with the monopolies. That's when things get pretty bleak and prices go up, quality goes down, and human flourishing suffers. 
And even if saying, and if saying no requires you to move, that's still a perfectly voluntary fine thing. Because when I talk to people who are, let's say more economically controlling, um, they view, you know, the cost of moving out of the country or the, um, difficulty of doing X, Y, or Z, um, to be so prohibitive that it's, um, that it's taxate, that it's basically involuntary, even if you could leap without an exit tax. But uh, for you, is that not the case? Well, I mean, there's some cost to everything, right? So if you're going to move anywhere, of course there's a cost, but it's by definition less of a cost than the person that has to move and pay the exit tax. Right. So, uh, oh, the move... Well, wouldn't be non-consensual per se. It would be like, hey, I don't like living in this country anymore, so I'm going to move to another country. That's on me. I'm consensually choosing to uproot my life, my things, and move it to another place. Now, it may be due to coercion that I faced in another country, but you're not going to, you're not going to make that situation better by adding the additional coercion of an exit tax on top of the moving cost. Right. So I want to um I want to go back to that uh, mafia protection money um comparison for a second. Um, so obviously it's true that if you do not pay the uh, protection fee, let's say, then um the mafia will put you in jail or hurt you if you refuse long enough. That's true. But you're not just paying for protection against them. Theoretically, you're also paying for protection against each other. Now I real um each other, and then also which I think might be the more um hardy challenge is a protection against other nations who also might be, uh, let's say less freedom maximalist minded. Uh, so how does that factor? How does the government's role in protecting your rights from each other, but more importantly, protecting you from outside countries and actors, um, does that offer any more legitimacy to the idea of uh, taxation? Or do you think that that's also not something we really need the state for or government for, um, whichever is more specific? I don't think there's any moral justification for uninitiated coercion, which is what taxation is, right? You go out into the world, you create something of value, you create some economic surplus, your business activities, right? Build a business, find a farm, whatever it may be. Um, you're creating more goods and services per unit of human time. And then there's an organization that says, great, thank you for doing that. Give me 25%. Um, that you did not initiate that coercion. You didn't, you did not, it's not like you coerced government or attacked the government or did anything to anyone to, uh, to initiate reciprocal coercion. You just engaged in consensual voluntary exchange and then you were stolen from. So again, it, it comes back to this terminological thing. When you talk about taxation, it's the lack of consent that is key. And we all understand this intuitively. What's the difference between a job and slavery? Consent, right? What's the difference between uh, a transaction and theft? It's consent, right? You sign your bill at the end of a restaurant, you're consenting. Yes, please take my money for that food I just ate. Now, if someone took your credit card and ran card at that same restaurant and you did not consent to that, that would be theft. What's the difference between sex and rape? Consent. It's all, it's like, it's a very simple principle, but uh, it's almost 
invisible in many ways in the modern world because taxes are extracted at source, right? You get your paycheck, the taxes are already, money's already gone, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And, um, these things are normalized, but if you study the history of them, they're not normal, right? The income tax didn't come into place until after the inception of the Federal Reserve. It was said to be a temporary measure, just like all these government measures are said to be. Uh, I, Friedman, I think, there's nothing more permanent yeah. than a temporary government solution. Yep. And so they just, they crew over time, right? You get into the situation where now we have a 25 to 40% effective tax rate on a U.S. citizen is normalized, whereas we started a fucking revolution over a 3% tax on tea when we had the Boston Tea Party, right? It was 3 or 4% tax. Uh, yeah, so, it was 3 to 4% tax and a lack of representation in setting that tax. Yeah. Sure. But, um, I, you know, taxation without representation. So the point of government is to enshrine life, liberty, property. Is doing anything beyond those, and it's that is taxation without representation. Um, and so I, you know, I don't want to be. You know, libertarians are often accused of being utopic or delusional, like you're never going to have a world that works like that. But I truly believe it comes down to the technology we're using, like the fact that gold is physical, like confiscatable is what led to us having a central bank in the first place. We needed to put all the gold in one place, not only it being confiscatable, but also portable. I'm sorry, gold not being portable is the reason we abstracted into a paper currency to make it more useful. But what you end up doing is you concentrate all that money and power into one institution, and then inevitably, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So that institution becomes very corrupt and I think if we have a new technological paradigm, which we do in Bitcoin, this sound money that's immaterial, dematerialized, you don't need to centralize the custody of it to make it globally transactable, then all the institutional realities we build on top of it look a lot, look a lot different. We don't need a central bank anymore. We don't need monopoly on money. I uh, shouldn't say we don't need. We never needed a monopoly on money or fiat currency, but the opportunity was there. Someone was able to seize this opportunity because all the power was centralized in one place. And in a Bitcoin world, I just don't, I don't think there are enough material incentives to centralize its custody. So you won't see that play out the same way. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I'm going to ask you one more question on the governmental consent thing, and then we're going to dive into the Fed and into the Bitcoin stuff. Um, so it sounds like to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that if 
let's say once you reached a certain age of maturity and you were offered a consensual choice, you know, like let's make the social contract real. Like you actually get to sign a contract or you get to say no and uh, and you can opt out and you can leave. Um, would that would that be enough, do you think, to make everything the state does consensual if you really did voluntarily sign it and say, in exchange for this tax rate, I get the conditions that provide stability for me and security for me that allow me to do all the things I want to do, including economic things, and therefore I can consent to the authority of the state. Um, I actually signed this. Would that be enough um, to make things consensual if there really was a physical, actual social contract? And if that did exist, do you think anybody would really not sign it and decide to go somewhere else? Oh, it's the power to say no. That's the root word of sovereignty. So as long as you have capacity to say no and opt out, then yeah, that's a consensual exchange. All right. You know, if you go to buy a car from your local car dealer and you guys are negotiating, haggling over the price, you know, you want it for 40000 he wants to sell it to you for 50000 you're trying to find some middle ground back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. It is... The risk of you as the customer walking out of that door and taking your business to his competitor down the street that keeps that individual car dealer honest in his dealings with you. Right? Right. He knows that you, you're, he's not the only shop in town, so to speak. And so you have the power to say no at any time and go elsewhere. That's why he has to deal fairly with you. If you remove that, right? If he's the only car dealer in town, all of a sudden he's a monopolist. And he knows you can't go anywhere else and you need a car and he's whatever, assume he's established a legal monopoly as the federal reserve has over yeah. money. Yeah. Um, but violently and coercively shutting down any competitor that tries to sell cars in or around his dealership, then all of a sudden he can extract wealth from you, right? He can charge you whatever he wants for that car. You don't have, you don't have negotiating leverage. So, Yes, I think to the extent that the social contract is made is in let's say made tangible and real and you can opt in or opt out and you can negotiate price for service just like you do in every other market in the world, then that would transform taxation into this security uh, production business, something like that. And it's a pernicious problem because when you're talking about physical security, we're talking about a monopoly on violence, right? Like yeah. how do you negotiate with a monopoly on violence? They have all the physical power. So when you say no, they just go, well, you can say no all you want. We have all the guns. We have the army. We're going to charge you that anyways. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not the ethos of what the United States was founded as. We were founded as a constitutional republic and we inherited a lot of those values from the Magna Carta. I think we really went astray when we went with life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness rather than life, liberty, and inviolable property. Because inviolable property is very clear. Inviolable property means everyone keeps the value that they create. And then whatever consensual transfer of property titles occur, those are valid. And it also, inviolable private property 
means you can never have a central bank because a central bank, when they're printing money, they're violating the property rights of savers, right? Mm. They're debasing, yeah, yeah, the purchasing existing currency to enrich the shareholders of the central bank or whoever's getting access to the newly printed money first. So inviolable property is very clear that a central bank is unethical, malevolent, uh, doesn't offer any equitable benefit to a nation state whatsoever. So I think that's where it's at. You know, we, we've been trying to figure out what the right, the right symbolic canopy to organize ourselves beneath for many, forever, for all of human history. We've been trying different governmental experiments, you know, monarchy, dictatorship, fascism, communism, capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've, philosophically, we figured it out, right? It's life, liberty, property, leave people alone. But now it's how do you actually implement that in a way that those that come to power generations later cannot renege on it? I think, yeah, Bitcoin, huge contributor to that. Because again, we're not, with gold, you had to centralize the custody of it, which this corrupts, which leads to the central bank, which leads to the systematic violation of private property through the inflation of currency supplies. But in a Bitcoin world, you would never need to centralize the custody in the first place. So you would have recourse to a form of property that no one can buy. It's very expensive to violate, let's say. And so if, if incentives are what is driving human action, then Bitcoin is a huge boon to peaceful, prosperous human interaction. Right. And I think that, um, I mean, I, I definitely think that Bitcoin does achieve that goal. Although in my mind, which again, I don't know a ton about this. That's why I'm talking to you is it, it raises a few problems. So I think there's a Tom Solo quote um, about how like the Fed was established to do two things, um, prevent recessions and depressions and uh, limit inflation. And it's done neither. Um, but one, yeah. Um, but one of the things that it has, I mean, kind of done, or let's say theoretically a central bank could do, um, is keep the value of a currency stable. Um, and this is the thing that pops into my mind about Bitcoin, is that why is Bitcoin different than the Dutch tulips? I understand Bitcoin and stocks are not the same thing. However, if its value is based just kind of on the ebbing and flowing collective will of the people, isn't that also a pretty significant danger to people's savings? Um, if it can, if there's basically no guardrails around the value that Bitcoin can rise to and fall to, or at least that's my understanding of what Bitcoin is like. So um, I'm curious. So if my understanding is wrong, correct me. But um, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the central bank does not control the value of currency in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So when you say that, you make that statement, they can put up guardrails and control the value. What specifically do you mean? Because it's not okay. actually possible well, to they control the value of anything. Well, they can control what it's backed by. It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. And I suppose that that is also fluctuatable, but it's more difficult to fluctuate. I mean, back in the day, it was backed by gold. And at least that's like a set amount of stuff that it's backed by. I would advocate for a return to the gold standard. But even full faith and credit of the U.S., which I don't like, at least like the geopolitical position of the United States is 
less subject to rapid and extreme changes than people's general vibes about, you know, tulips or, um, or in this analogy about Bitcoin. It's just, it feels more stable. Now, again, I'm, I, I'm saying it feels that way. So if my conception is wrong, please tell me why it's wrong, because that's one of the main concerns that's been rattling around in my head for a while. And I'm curious uh, what you think about that. I mean, you're correct, though, but I just wanted to highlight that the collective, when you're saying the collective will determining the, the value of things, mm -hmm. that's always the case. Ace about everything, even fiat currency. You can flip a switch right now and put an idea in everyone's head that, hey, the dollar is going to lose its purchasing power rapidly over the next 10 years. People would start to sell their dollars and the value of the dollar would collapse. There's nothing the central bank could do to shore that up. So it's mm. value is always an expression. We only understand what humans value by what they do. So it's always a function of human action. If I'm going to walk across the room, that tells you that I value being on the other side of the room more than I value being where I'm at. That's the only way we can determine value. So the central bank would argue that they preserve the purchasing power stability of the currency over time. I would say this is a totally bogus argument. Now, when the dollar was pegged to gold, that's much more accurate, right? Gold actually does have a more stable purchasing power. Um, but even that is just subjective. Well, and then if you look at, and it also depends on your time horizon, because the Fed was incepted in 1913, so we're talking about 110 years ago, the dollar has lost over 99% of its purchasing power in 110 years. So is that stable? Well, obviously not. It's stable to the downside. Um, I would not call that stable. Decline in stable-ish uh, rate. But the, the sort of like bait and switch that has occurred is after World War II and the United States held the Bretton Woods Conference and it said the dollar would be pegged to gold, all of their international currencies would be pegged to the dollar. That was how we baked in this, what the French called the exorbitant privilege, that we could just print new dollars, export them, print dollars that require us no work to produce, send them to other countries in the world in exchange for goods and services that require work to produce. So it gave us this asymmetric advantage um, and a means to acquire wealth. And other countries agreed to this only under the conditions that those dollars were then available for gold. Mm -hmm. So if the United States, too many dollars, France or whoever could call the bluff of the U.S. and say, you know what? I think you've printed too many of these. I don't want the dollars anymore. I'll take the gold. I'll take the thing nobody can print or counterfeit, which is the gold itself. Right. And indeed, it was, so 1944, 1945, we have Bretton Woods. By 1971, we have six times, there's, we've levered our gold stash six to one, right? There's six times more dollars outstanding than there is gold to justify it. So we've, we've totally over-issued dollars by that point. And that's why Nixon, when, I think it was Germany that tried to repatriate the gold, they said, you know what? We don't want these dollars. We'll take the gold back. That's when Nixon said, oh, this is one step too far. We're going to suspend redeemability of gold. And all the currencies began to just um, float against one another. So that is 
again, it was the dollar kind of inheriting the confidence, people's confidence in gold. The dollar inherited that. And then people, because we're, we can be duped, you know, like we get used to just dealing with this paper instrument, especially after a few decades go by. And you just forget, you don't understand that, oh, this thing used to be redeemable for gold or why that mattered. And if you combine that with a world that's globalizing and economizing, and we're putting out more and more goods, goods and service. So there's, there has been potential, people have grown, people have made fortunes. Um, you can really start to forget why it matters that the currency be redeemable for gold, that there be some restraint placed on the government's capacity to issue currency. Because if it doesn't, then it's just an organization that can never take a loss. Right. You know, we call these, we call them deficits when it comes to governments, say deficit spending, things like this. They're spending money they don't have. So how do they pay for it? They print new money. Who suffers when you print new money? Sabers. Sabers are being expropriated through the printing of money. So all we're saying here is the government needs to be accountable for its actions, for its spending, for the preferences of citizens. And in order to enforce that accountability, you have to have sound money. People have to be able to call a bluff of the government. Other countries need to be able to call other countries bluffs, et cetera, et cetera. When you centralize and monopolize currency production, especially on a fiat standard, there's no mechanism of reconciliation. You just, the government just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And here we are in 2023, look what's happening in the world, right? We have health ministers that are morbidly obese. We have children getting their genitalia like butchered under gender reassignment uh, legislation. We have very high inflation rates. The inflation, like the world is falling apart. The world's falling apart because government is overgrown. The government is overgrown because currency production is monopolized. And currency production is monopolized because Bitcoin hasn't fully monetized yet. So this is where Bitcoin is get really passionate, I think. And you know, we say fix the money, fix the world. So governments have to be accountable. They're PL, just like every other business in the world. So on an economic level, I um I definitely understand the uh the pull of Bitcoin. Um so let's let's go there for a second. Um how exactly is so is Bitcoin's value totally derived just from the fact that people value it? Or I've I've heard the argument that because you actually have to mine it, because it takes a certain amount of, let's say, mathematical and work, a certain amount of energy that's actually has to be put into the system in exchange for the Bitcoin. Um, do you think that that backs it as well? Or do you think it's mostly just the voluntary thing? Uh, well, again, everyone has such values based on how well they satisfy their wants. So if I want to cut a steak, I want a sharp knife. I'm going to value a sharp knife more than I am a dull knife. If I want to preserve my purchasing power over a decade or two decades, I'm going to value gold more than we got to value a dollar because the dollar is being depreciated. And so when you look at something like money, people value the credibility of the monetary properties. And I always break this down to five, right? People want a money that's divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce. Historically, gold was the most, gold was the best tool that satisfied those properties. That's why gold became money. However, it suffered in that one department. 
It's such the departments, but very heavily it suffered in portability. Right. And then gold is hard to transact over space, right? And it's also has a high value to weight ratio. So if I'm going to buy coffee with gold, I need to transact in gold dust, which is obviously not very practical. So you needed, we needed to abstract gold into a currency to make it more usable, more transactable for a globalizing world. The problem with that, that abstraction, of course, is that you now needed to trust a custodian to say, I'm holding a hundred tons of gold. I've issued a hundred tons of paper. I have not issued any additional paper. And that temptation has proven to be wholly irresistible by human beings across history. So when you look at Bitcoin, it's basically perfected those properties of money. It's infinitely divisible. Uh, you can break each one down into a hundred million subunits called sats. If that were ever insufficient, say a cup of coffee cost a half a sat, something like that. Great. You can install increase. You can increase the divisibility. Right. So you could go from a hundred subunits to a billion to a hundred billion. You can go as far as you need. And it only requires a soft fork. So it's a backwards compatible upgrade. Very easy to uh, accommodate with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's also infinitely durable. Um, the analogy I like to use here is, you know, the Bible is just this distributed piece of information. You can go and physically destroy as many Bibles as you want. You can go out on an all-out Bible-burning campaign, but you will never extinguish the Bible as a concept, right? It's, it's distributed information all over the world. It's basically infinitely durable. I think as long as there are human beings, there will be a copy of the Bible. Um, so Bitcoin's very similar. It's just distributed information. Every node, every miner has full copy of the entire transaction history, the entire software. It's it's everywhere and nowhere, right? It's replicated so many times that it makes it impossible to destroy. So although it's immaterial, it's essentially perfected durability. Uh, obviously, by virtue of it just being pure information, you can move it at the speed of light. To hold Bitcoin is to just hold a, literally a string of information called a private key. You can transmit that private key over anything, anything that can transmit information. And so obviously it makes it very portable. Um, there's also recognizability with money. And that's just, how do you verify the authenticity of the money? This is actually where we get the term sound money, because when you would drop a gold coin from a certain height, it would make a very particular sound. And that was used as a heuristic for determining the veracity of the gold to make sure it wasn't gold dipped lead or something like that. Interesting. So with Bitcoin, you can audit the full supply, the entire transaction history. Like you don't trust anyone. You literally run the code on your own computer and verify everything down to the digit of what's happened. So it, it's perfected recognizability. Uh, you could also think of this as like auditability, something like that. It's perfectly auditable. And then finally, um, is scarcity, right? Which is something that is hard to produce. Uh, gold, this is what gave gold such a great store value function over time is that it was one of the hardest commodities to increase the supply of. Therefore, if you put purchasing power in it, you knew that you were only going to get, only going to be debased by one and a half or 2% per year. So that's why it was the chosen medium for preserving purchasing power over time, because I had a very rigid supply and inflexible supply, hard to counterfeit, impossible to counterfeit, hard to increase the supply of. And what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin has perfected that. It is the first fixed supply 
first and only, I would argue, fixed supply asset that humanity will ever have. So it's perfected this monetary property of scarcity and uh, allows individuals to hold a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply for all time. You can't say that about any other asset. I hold a thousand Bitcoin. I know perfect certainty that I have a thousand out of a possible 21 million that will never change. That is the fully diluted holdings uh, of that asset. You can't even say that about gold. We don't know if we're going to compromise the supply of gold by mining the ocean floor, mining an asteroid, maybe learning to create artificial gold more cheaply in a lab. We can already create artificial gold in the lab, but we can do it economically, uh, let's say cost-effectively enough to compromise the supply integrity of gold. But that's not to say it's not a possibility in the future. All right. So we're left, what, you know, what do people value in money? It's like they value the properties of money. And Bitcoin, for the, the same reason that gold, same reasons gold emerged as money, because it best satisfied those properties, I think is the same set of reasons that Bitcoin ultimately outcompetes gold and absorbs all the monetary premium worldwide. So it sounds like Bitcoin has unbelievable advantages over every other alternative. Um, so the question that is in my paranoid brain is what's the downside? Um, I tend to be very skeptical. I, uh, you know, I get another Tom Sowell quote is there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So what are, are there any particular downsides to Bitcoin? I mean, like one of the crazy events in my head was like EMP takes out everything electronic on earth and then there's no more Bitcoin. I mean, is that really the only stuff that we need to worry about? Only like kind of fanciful apocalyptic stuff or are there any more like practical downsides that we'll have to deal with when it comes to dealing with Bitcoin or is it really just purely miraculous? You know, yeah, well, people ask a lot of these questions, right? Because you start to realize that Bitcoin does offer many, many advantages. It's like, it's a evolutionary step change in money in a way, mm -hmm. right? We've been dealing with gold for a long time and all of its issues. And in many ways, that shaped human history. But now we have discovered or invented something that's actually an order of magnitude better than gold. Um, and the implications become very significant if you study it deeply. And so you do end up in kind of these long tail events when you're thinking about what could stop Bitcoin. And it's usually like some type of, like you said, a global EMP uh, I think another good question is how do you turn the internet off everywhere forever? It's not enough to shut down the internet for a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. You would literally need to turn the internet completely off permanently. Um, and again, it's easy to say that. Like it almost sounds like there's an on off switch somewhere. I'm not like turn off the internet. And anywhere two computers are connected, there is an internet, right? So you'd have to stop the connection of computers permanently everywhere. You'd have to prevent people from linking uh, communication devices together. And that just doesn't seem very feasible. And it, especially when you consider the individuals that participate in the Bitcoin network, right? They're very technically sophisticated, very well capitalized, very highly motivated. Bitcoin is already the most secure computing network in human history. Um, so you end up, when you ask this question, like, how do you stop Bitcoin? You end up in these very low probability, long tail apocalyptic scenarios where 
you know, guns and bullets and food are going to be your primary concerns anyways. So not right. suggesting that everyone's, and I never prescriptively say you should go out and buy Bitcoin. Like we talk about it a lot. I talk about why I advocate for it. Um, but ultimately I think people should just study Bitcoin, study gold, study the nature of money itself and determine for them what's right. You know, if you're a very scared person and you like the comfort of living inside the state and you don't want any risk and you don't want to shrock the boat and you just want to like go to work and get taxed and not ask any questions, then maybe the dollar standard's great for you. Maybe you don't mind that, you know? Um, if you're a little more skeptical of government, a little bit more studious of history, then maybe, but maybe distrustful of technology, you know, you're an older guy, you're not, so let's say you're a, a boomer or older, maybe some gold in a safe or gold buried in the backyard is right for you. Um, if you're, you know, I'm an old millennial, 37 years old, I'm comfortable with technology. I've studied the history of money. Uh, I've studied Bitcoin very closely for the past six years. I have a high degree of confidence in its persistence. I, you know, the network has had basically perfect uptime for the past 14 years. As I said earlier, it's the most secure computing network in the history of the world. That's something that's for me as a young man, I'm uh, that studied it. I feel good making a bet on that. Well, so, not any single answer, right? For it's again, value is subjective. We all choose what's right for us based on our phase of life and circumstances. And, um, but the, the, the existential questions about Bitcoin, you end up in these, there's no basic scenario where Bitcoin just fails and stops working. It's always some far out apocalyptic, you know, global EMP wiped us out. Some kind of solar flare wiped everything out. Somehow the internet was disabled everywhere. They all end up describing a situation where we somehow return to the stone age. And so if that's part of your model, then count for that and don't hold, you know, hold a hedge against Bitcoin in that scenario. If that's not part of your model, then maybe Bitcoin's a good fit for you. Well, you're certainly make a compelling uh, case to diversify at least a little bit. Uh, now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. 
Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So my last question for you is kind of, this is actually the question that moved me away from uh, classical libertarianism a little bit, which is kind of why I sent it, saved it to the end, which is, I am not super, so it kind of applies to the uh, governmental side of things in terms of uh, taxation, in terms of like not really needing the state and the NAP. And um, it also kind of is married to the economic thing, which is how realistic is this really um, when in when understood in the context of what human nature is actually like? Because to me, it sounds like you are creating a type of power vacuum, maybe not in the Bitcoin side of things, because our technology is really good over there. But at least when it comes to like organizing humans in a state like organization, if everybody if everything is moderated by the NAP and everything is just voluntary to me it looks like that that's a power vacuum that somebody who is malevolent who is charismatic enough to gather a whole bunch of force will try to step in and fill that power vacuum um i'm somebody who's very skeptical idea idea that you can maintain a power vacuum like that and um i i have reached the intermediate conclusion because i'm sure i'll change my mind on this going forward that it's better to have something in that power vacuum that is, you know, okay, rather than trying to maintain a vacuum that will ultimately collapse into something horrific. I mean, sorry for giving you my thesis on that, but do you think that there is such thing as a power vacuum? Do you think that human nature is compatible with this type of freedom maximalist society? Um, do you, or, or do you there's, think there's a risk there? There's, there's a saying that human nature is like water takes the shape of its container. And I think the container that's referenced in that quote is ultimately the incentive schema or the incentive structure we inhabit. They humans are constantly responding to material incentives, consciously or unconsciously. And it might not be the primary, it might not be the sole driver of human action, but I do think it is the primary driver of human action is material incentives. So when you talk about a power vacuum emerging in a world where people are self-sovereign or self-governing, you know, largely interacting with one another consensually, I think it all comes back to that aspect of material incentives. And it's like, okay, maybe it maybe that does create a when we say power vacuum, right? A lack of a centralized power is an opportunity for someone to establish a centralized power, go out and coerce people for profit. The operative question becomes how profitable is coercion though? And so if people have access to Bitcoin and you're not treating me well in a certain place and I can move my wealth into Bitcoin, I can put my private keys in my brain, I can cross a border with a million dollars between my ears, right? I have this, I have recourse to a form of wealth that's virtually unseizable if I custody it properly. And doesn't that make the entire enterprise of coercion more difficult and therefore less profitable? It would make it harder. So it's like back to this original point that ec it's the economics of violence and coercion, like, again, the book, Sovereign Individual, I highly encourage people to read it, that 
largely determine what shape society takes. And it's been these little inventions over time that have changed it. You know, I mentioned the knight on horseback earlier. Well, guess what? There was no knight on horseback before the invention of the stirrup. Knight was on foot and he right. wasn't a very powerful footballer because he didn't have a lot of mobility. Once we invented the stirrup though, all of a sudden the knight can be on a horseback and he was the law of the land. Until of course, gunpowder was invented, right? That it was very easy to kill a knight from far away. Sounds like even efficient to do that. Sounds like but it changed again. Video. Sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. There's a lag. That's my fault. All right. And then with Bitcoin, you just have a form of wealth that is the most cost-effective form of wealth to defend ever. Right. All right. You can put literally an unlimited amount of purchasing power. What? Oh, I shouldn't say unlimited. It's a 500 billion market cap asset today. So if you need to store any amount of purchasing power less than $500 billion, which is the case for most of us, then you have access to be able to put your entire net worth into this thing that you can put on your brain, or you can transmit over radio, transmit over the internet, you can write it down on a sheet of paper. It, you have tremendous power to now move yourself and your wealth anywhere in the world outside of any legal framework whatsoever. So it's, it's almost like this, you know, that classic idea of power to the people. This is one of yeah. the ultimate implications of giving power to the people. So you said earlier, this is an absolute last question, fix money, fix the world. I think that if we, you know, fix the Fed, uh, let's, let's say fix is a nice way of putting it. Um, if you, you know, oh. yeah, <laughs> and the Fed, yeah, that one, um, I'm not, I don't know how convinced I am because a lot of our problems in our modern day, a lot of those immoral things that you referenced that are absolutely horrific, um, I think do come from an overreach of government. But again, some of it I feel comes from a lack of virtue. How, if you, how exactly connect these dots for me of how, you know, having a better currency of having more material wealth translates to more virtue in society, because I'm not sure that that's true. Um, so yeah, as I was telling highly encourage how's that work? I would hi highly encourage you to read a book written by Hoppe titled A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And it comes back to this. So I talk about this ad nauseum on the show. So sorry if you've heard it before, but this very I would say it's the most important topic in all of human affairs, and that is private property. Just the ability to keep what you earn, right? It's a principle of justice. Did you make it or did you consensually trade for it? Then it's yours. If you stole it, then it's not yours, right? The more integral we can make private property, the more you are incentivizing productive, cooperative human action. If I know that I can keep all the fruits of my labor, that I am incentivized as a producer to be as productive as possible. Now, the extent to which I do not keep the fruits of my labor, which is to say whatever my tax rate is or whatever my risk of being robbed is, that lessens my incentive to be productive. I, if I know I only keep 80 cents on every dollar that I earn, which is actually pretty good yeah. uh, in the modern yeah. context, right? A 20% effective tax rate, then I'm disincentivized from being productive to the tune of 20%. Right.
And, and not only that, the person that's taking from me, right? The tax collector, the tax authority, you are incentivizing people to engage in that practice or that enterprise. So you're incentivizing a non-productive, stealing, coercive activity. So not only are you disincentivizing to the degree private property is viable, is the degree to which you are disincentivizing productive action. It's the same degree to which you are incentivizing non-productive political action. So the stronger we can make private property, like the more resistant to theft we can make it, the more we can encourage people to be productive, prosperous, long-term thinking, non-violent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that I think is key to the cultivation of virtue. I agree with what people that are and loving and caring and compassionate and appreciate, appreciative of justice and truth seeking. Well, bring them up under conditions that reflect that, right? If you, and if we we'll look at it in the opposite context where let's say no one believes in God and everyone's just up for the taking and there is no private property rights. And you know, you plant, you spend a year planning the forum. Well, I'm just going to come in and fucking take the thing. So like, what's the point? Why would you ever even try to plant? Yeah. Or I'll figure it out. Everyone's in the violence business, right? And we're reduced to pure barbarity. That's the opposite end of the extreme with no private property. So this is why Mises said, if his, and this is Mises, right? The, probably the smartest libertarian philosopher that ever lived. He said, if history can teach us one thing, it is that civilization, private property are inexorably bound together. Like they are the same thing. The stronger the property rights, and you can look at this empirically across history. Anywhere you've had strong private property, the strong tradition of private property, people have become richer, more peaceful, more innovative, more innovative. They've flourished, uh, cultural flourishing, artistic flourishing, all of these things. So it's my strong opinion that it is this principle of justice. People keep what they earn, right? If, if justice is people getting what they deserve, isn't it, doesn't it make sense that people deserve to keep what they earn? Like it's a very basic moral intuition. No, the extent to which we can actually that into the world is the extent to which we can actually create civilizational flourishing. 100%. And so Bitcoin is a huge step in that direction because it's a form of property that's extremely difficult to violate. Right. So it's like, it's not about writing it on a piece of paper and we all gather around and call ourselves a constitutional republic. We promise we'll never steal your wealth and we'll never implement a central bank. And then three generations later, well, shit, we implemented the central bank, tax rates, 40%, global war, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that cycle. It's a hard technological implementation of something that's really hard to steal. That almost like it's a, it's a new incentive system that we poured human nature into. And I think it makes us a lot better in right. the process. It's not that we promise not to do it. It's that this technology makes it that you can't do it even if you'd want to. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bingo. So I save this from ourselves. I agree that it would make us more productive and more consensual, all that stuff. My one concern is that consent isn't the only value and production isn't either. Like I wouldn't be concerned if in this society drugs were super legal and prostitution was super common. Is that a concern for you? Because I could see a reality where you have a NAP freedom maximal society that also happens not to believe in some of those parts of uh, God and is uh, perfectly happy with um those types well, of things keep in mind too that when we say like a freedom maximal society it's almost like presupposing 
giant society that abides by one code of values and laws. Like that's fairly not the case. That's fair. People all over the world are going to themselves into different buckets, different tribes. Like maybe, I don't, what, what country legalized drugs? Was it Norway or something like that? I don't know. Uh, Norway sounds right. Maybe it's Norway, Amsterdam. Yeah. Amsterdam, yeah, some degrees. That don't, they criminalize it. They decriminalize, you know, you can have all these different experiments running, but the key point is that people can opt out of any one experiment without being robbed or plundered or coerced and you can move to another place that works better for you. And like we sort of have that today a little bit, but every place in the world has a central bank. Right. You're getting robbed all the time. Right. This makes the decentralization and therefore experimentation of governance structures um, even richer and more more varied, you know, so you get more and more experimentation and ways yeah. to organize ourselves, right? Including all the things you just named. It promotes. So I'm not saying like, yeah, freedom activism everywhere is going to have prostitution and drugs. Not necessarily. Like societies can choose what's right for them, and sure. hey, in this culture we appreciate these things. In this culture we don't. You choose where you want to end up. All right. Well, I have a million things I want to ask you, but um, I think I got through the most burning of them so i'm going to let you go um slightly over the hour mark uh thank you so much for being here i really do appreciate it uh, yeah, five minutes of questions i can do that because yeah i'm coming up over here all right um if if you guys have any questions um say in the chat and then i'll unmute you if you have a question for uh question here um, okay, Ify has one. Yeah, Ify, I muted you. I don't know how you had uh, permission in the first place. All right, Ify, uh, you have a minute. Go ahead, ask your question. Thank you. I was curious, um, don't you think a lot of the confrontation in the more modern systems comes more from the friction of not being able to update taboos and laws as quickly as human reaction? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand the question. If there are um, frictions, inability to update taboos and traditions, was that the question? Well, like taboos are kind of like the pre precedent of law. When we get a taboo that's big enough, we, we get enough social pressure to make it into a law. And I thought a lot of the friction came from the delay between a taboo becoming a law. And that we should acknowledge that a lot of the friction is just that limitation, not necessarily that we're doing something wrong. Just that it's slow. I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer to that question, but it, it does call to mind one other important point in regards to the rule of law. Um, and this is a, the common adage you, you've probably heard, possession is nine-tenths of the law. People say that. Reality is that Property is 10 tenths of the law. Literally everything, entire legal system, the rule of law exists to resolve disputes over scarce resources. This can include your body, right? If someone hurts you or murders you or whatever, um, you are also your own property. You own yourself. Um, or if people steal from you. Yeah. So the point is the rule of law grounds out in the preservation of private property. It exists to serve the institution of private property. So back to what we were saying earlier that, you know, property is such an operative institution in determining 
the incentives that make people productive, non-productive, political, productive, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It also shapes legal systems. Um, now, now this is a huge open question for me because Bitcoin changes things a lot, right? If it's very, think about just a simple divorce between a man and a woman. There's already cases out there like this, right? Man and woman married for 10 years and then they split. Assume they don't have a prenup. Uh, typically the man was at work. The woman was raising the kids. The woman is entitled to some portion of those assets. Now, Bitcoin's a real game changer because if man can just put all his wealth in Bitcoin, even if the court can enforce and say, you owe her 50% of your assets, and so they can pass that judgment, but that judgment becomes much more difficult to enforce, actually. You'd have to beat so the question out of them, right? That would literally be the only way. You'd have to torture him. You know? I'm sorry, a lot of people were talking at once. Um, I'm just saying that the rule of law, the way we understand it today, it's going to be like these judgments that are useful today, right? In a fiat standard, the, the judge can just cut his assets in half and send half to her because it's, you know, if it's a if it's a real estate title, that's under the agus of the state. If it's a fiat bank account, that's under the agus of the state. These assets can be seized and moved, et cetera. Coin changes that. So what does that mean for marriage? Like, I don't know. People will probably renegotiate, right? So maybe when you get married and she agrees to have the kids and he agrees to go to work, maybe he puts some Bitcoin in her wallet every month or whatever it may be over time, such that if they ever do split, she has some, right? She doesn't need to have recourse to the state to try and coerce him to chop his assets in half. So that's just what I'm getting at, that, that the rule of law grounds out in private property and Bitcoin by being this radically new form of private property has impacts it. And I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't know how this is actually going to work, but it's going to change the way people position and negotiate themselves in commercial, romantic, and even personal relationships. Uh, hopefully it will... Um... If it's less easy to take half of the guy's stuff, hopefully it'll help keep marriages together. Um, that that could be what happens if they don't do prenups. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Pointing to how radical of a change this is. Like, it's a very profound incentive system change. And everything that we think we know about the world today is, you kind of have to look at it through a new lens. Nuts and bolts, how likely do you really think that this is going to happen? And also, I feel like the transition from dollars to Bitcoins would be also very painful uh, because the dollar is losing almost all value and you're trying to, you know, trade it for Bitcoin so you can get on the new system. But, you know, you're jumping from a sinking, you're jumping from a very rapidly sinking boat, let's say. So number one is um, if, how likely do you think is that this is really going to happen? Um and then second, if it does happen, what do you think that trend? Or, or what are we uh, The move to Bitcoin as like, let's say the- Reach them Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the dominant thing. I've never seen in my studies of monetary history, I can't name one instance where human beings have centralized and monopolized currency production started printing money again printing money is a colloquial term right just expanding the currency supply beyond whatever the actual monetary reserves can justify 
So you go from a full reserve bank, for instance, to a fractional reserve bank, ultimately to a zero reserve bank, which is fiat currency. Once humans begin on that progression, I have never seen them stop. They never stop. Print money until it's worthless, right? That's why every fiat currency, other than the ones that exist today, right? The best performing fiat currency that still exists today is the British pound. It's 320 years old. It sells 99.8% of its value in that time. That's the best one we've got. The best longest live fiat currency in the world. Once humans start printing money, they do not stop until the money breaks. So what do I see in the world today? I see central banks all over the world expanding currency supplies at unprecedented rates. And if you know how this works, there's the law of uh, accelerating issuance and depreciation. So every time you issue more currency, fiat currency into the system, you're incentivizing market actors to take on even more debt because there's a direct incentive to borrow dollars that you know are going to be depreciating, right? So you borrow dollars when they're strong, you right. spend them and you pay back weaker dollars over time. That, ex that exponentially expands the liabilities in the system. When the next economic shock comes, all those liabilities get wiped out and the demand to print money is exponentially larger. So you get these huge, you know, we printed 700 billion in 2008. We printed 6 trillion for COVID. And we printed another 2 trillion for this nascent banking crisis. So it's an order of magnitude larger. I don't, th how likely I think Bitcoin is to succeed is how likely humans are to continue printing money. We cannot stop. It is the number one drug we've been addicted to across all of human history. And Bitcoin is rehab. So that's how likely I think it is to succeed. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I think uh, that's a perfect note to end on. Appreciate you coming on. Um, definitely different kind of guest. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Hope I can talk to you again. Thank you, Lon. Thanks for that.